Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 56. Last episode, we heard about Dr. Somerville's expedition to Ditokong, which was interesting but a failure in terms of its main aim. That was to secure cattle. He came back with only around 160 when the Cape needed a few hundred at least. Also on the move at the moment was the London Missionary Society's Johannes Theodorus van der Kemp, if you remember him. He had arrived in the Graaf Reinet in May 1801 and joined by James Reed, replacing poor Edmonds, who had a nervous breakdown while at Enrique's great place. After the barren proselytizing disappointments of the Zuurveld, Graaf Reinet offered something new. The village and its outskirts were packed with khoi seeking protection from the Boers and the Khoisan bandits, and who responded eagerly to Van der Kemp's preaching. On hand was Commissioner Mainier, encouraging and helping them. Staring at all of this and aghast were the Boers of the region. It was a seething hotbed of Trekboer resistance to British rule. Mainier's principal task was to restore stability along the frontier. This meant getting the fugitive Boers back on their farms and reviving the economy so they could supply meat to the Cape. Unfortunately for the Khoikhoi, it also meant convincing them to go back and work for the Trek Boers. To help balance things and motivate the Khoi, Mainier opened an employment register where wages were written down for the first time. Cases of ill treatment of workers were also listed and there was recourse to the law. Lurking amongst the Khoisan, however, was Klaus Stuermann, the captain who was one of the main belligerents in the previous uprising. He flitted between the town and the bush, where other dissidents remained on the move, raiding and rustling where they could. The Boers accused Stuermann of murder and robbery, and then Mainier was hustled back to Cape Town to explain why he allowed this Khoisan man to roam about. Mainier exonerated himself and returned. That drove the burghers into an extra frenzy of disbelief. Some Trek Boers began circulating rumours that Mainier had gone to the Cape to receive orders to conscript the Boers into the British Army and Navy. This would not do, they raged. It was untrue, but you know how misinformation can lead to action. Apparently, having learned nothing from their failed rebellion of 1799, in May 1801 they began their new march to freedom. Again. Van der Kemp was utterly opposed to the Trek Boers. Despite his origin, he was Dutch, after all, and they reciprocated by openly hating him. Van der Kemp was teaching the Khoikhoi to read and write, which was something that many Trek Boers could not do themselves, and worse, these missionaries and maniacs were using the church as a schoolroom. The rebel Trek Boers then confronted maniac and made him enter the church and scrub down the floors and seats. It was an example of the Calvinist frontier farmers trying to separate themselves from the people. It was an early example of what would turn into the Group Areas Act, the Population Registration Act, whites-only toilets, and other apartheid folly. How dare he allow coy bottoms to be parked where white bottoms belong? The rebels duly withdrew from Grafreinet, having achieved their initial aim of demeaning and insulting the British commissioner, who happened to be Dutch. Of course, once they sobered up and returned home, they realized that Mainier was still in Grafreinet and the church was still a Khoikhoi school with bottoms returning to the seats. In October 1801, a large force of Trekpurs besieged Mainier in his Trotsdi, exchanging gunfire for an entire day with his small garrison of British regular troops and members of the Hottentot Corps. 
Later, when Van der Kemp walked out into the street, Tretbus tried to shoot him down but missed. Eventually, the rebels withdrew once more, but Van der Kemp had got the message. Nothing like a few musket balls zinging past your noggin to cause a change of plan. He'd been deep in thought for some time, and what he had in mind was an independent Khoikhoi community, self-sustaining and dedicated to evangelical conversion of the people. General Dundas liked the idea, so the new Dominie, James Reed, was dispatched to look for a suitable place near the coast. Eventually, he found an abandoned farm near Algoa Bay. It was conveniently near Fort Frederick. So, in February 1802, Van de Kemp and Reed set forth thence at the head of a column of Khoikhoi. Before leaving Graf Reinet, Van de Kemp stood on a wagon and read from Genesis chapter 35. Then Jacob said unto his household, Let us arise and go up to Bethel, he thundered. And thus they headed off to Bethel's Dorp, which is 20 kilometers northwest of Kaberge, and still there today along the old Utenhag or Eitenhager Road. But today it has a spa and rugby fields. Meanwhile, things back in Graf Reinet needed fixing. About 150 Goikoi who'd sought shelter in the town were enlisted to join that corps in just in time. Back in Cape Town, General Dundas had been promoted to full governor after the disastrous rule of Sir George Younger, who you know by now was corrupt and venal. Dundas knew that sending troops inland would weaken the British position at the port, but he had no choice. So he dispatched 300 British soldiers under Major F. Sherlock to Graf Reinet. They reached the village of Mud and Daub Houses in November 1801 and relieved Maynard and what historian John Labant calls his motley garrison. The local Dutch farmers were expecting the worst once Major Sherlock arrived, but much to their surprise, and probably Manius and the Khoikhoi, he took no further action against the rebels. Sherlock's notes reveal that he also felt sorry for the Trekboers because he believed that the Boers were going to be annihilated by the Khoikhoi anyway, so why arrest them? Also, Dundas had drilled into Sherlock the need to conciliate the Boers, and so he offered them full pardons if only they'd lay down their arms and disperse. The Boers wanted Mania replaced, again, and Dundas agreed. They asked for their favourite colonial apologist, Bresler, to be sent in his place, and he arrived just in time for a full-scale uprising. It's easy enough to criticise this treatment. What about the Khoi abused by the Boers, you'd ask? Were they not to receive justice? Well, the answer would be no, because at that very moment, the Amatkoza and Khoikhoi in the eastern districts decided it was time once more to take up arms against the invaders, both the Boer and the British. And Tlambi was on the lam after escaping from Nika's great place in February 1800 and had reunited with his adherents in the Zuderfeld. He was re-establishing his power at the same time, but it was hard work. Kungwa of the Amatkonukwebe had resisted his advances both metaphorically and physically. Kungwa was also trying to convince the Khoisan rebels, Sturman, Trompete and Busak, to join his cause as they roamed about the banks of the Sundays River. Things were going out of control again. Sherlock's friendliness towards the Boers was going to backfire on the British because Sturman and his rebel friends thought the English were weak and this would be the perfect time to take revenge on the Boers. If that sounds confusing logic, then think of it like this. 300 British troops march all the way from Algoa Bay to Graf Reinet across the blazing semi-desert, only to, well, to do nothing. 
So Stirman et al. presumed that is what they'd do if the Khoisan bands attacked the Boer farmers. They would do nothing. Stirred by the misreading of the situation, the Khoi Khoi bands formed an alliance with Amatkoz on the Zurfeld, and their war parties began to move on the Trekboers by the end of 1801. The Third Cape Frontier War had reignited, and this time the violence would be far worse. Stuermann was one of those who realised that there were rich pickings to be had and decided it was back to the bush for him and his friends. Dundas, back in Cape Town, was not exactly surprised by all of this and also had decided that if fighting was to be done, it wouldn't be the British. Remember, the hiding he'd personally received from the Amakosa in 1899, so he decided to use Boer commandos raised in Graafrenet and Swellendam instead. His logic appeared sound. These men knew the Zurfeld bush like the back of their hands. But the Amakosa knew the Zurfeld bush like the front of their fists, to mangle their metaphor once again. The commandos suffered from one big problem. Discipline. On the move, they turned into rampaging looters of note. There were no regulars, and they acted chaotically when they raided Amakosa and Khoi homesteads, pillaging, raping and killing as they went. Furthermore, the commando tactics were actually quite poor, as they were really hunting cattle and they didn't care about law and order. So the campaign did not go well. That was despite the fact that 88 Boers took part. The Swellendam commander under Chart van der Walt was thrashed in a 36-hour battle against Khoisan leader Sturman's men and women and ended up being chased back to Swellendam. Worse, Stierman had seized all of the cattle the Boers had managed to reclaim, and just to add insult to injury, Stierman also seized van der Walt's own musket. That was on 30th of January 1802. Meanwhile, van der Kemp and his tribe were slowly winding their way towards Algoa Bay, when they bumped into Sturman, who delivered an oration on Khoi Khoi misfortune, how the British were untrustworthy, and whose promises were mere words. Sturman said they'd believed the British wanted to defend the Khoi Khoi against Trekboer Misties, but once again they'd been deceived. Van der Kemp and Reed feared for their lives, but Sturman said they'd be protected. The missionaries had left Graafrenet with 300 Khoi Khoi, and most of these men and women promptly decided to join Sturman's new uprising. When Van der Kemp and co. eventually arrived in Bethelsdorp, only 77 Khoi Khoi were still with them. Still, this was the first permanent mission station of the London Missionary Society in the Zurfeld. It was their Jerusalem. Dundas was not unduly disappointed by the news, though, that the first Boer commando had been dispatched, and then ordered a far larger commando back into the bush in May 1802. As I said last episode, though, much, much bigger things were happening on the world stage, and the actors are well known. French First Consul Napoleon Bonaparte decided it was time to take a breath from the war against the English, while British Prime Minister Henry Addington's administration of 1801-1804 to had been a shambolic affair by all accounts. It was also financially exhausted by fighting an unsuccessful war against revolutionary France. So on the 25th of March, 1802, Great Britain and France signed the Treaty of Amiens. That was a bit of time-wasting because the English and the French would be at each other's throats again by May 1803. In the meantime, all London's claims to the Cape were to be discarded. 
General Dundas was being briefed by passing British fleets while this was happening, and let's just say his focus was not on the Amakosa of the Eastern Cape. No, they were on the ramifications of Napoleon. The Treaty of Amiens negotiations took months, and Napoleon ensured that his vassals in the Batavian Commonwealth, as he called it, received the Cape back from the British in full sovereignty. When the news of the Treaty of Amiens reached the Cape towards the end of August 1802, the Khoi War was going disastrously for the colonists. That less-than-brilliant military commander, Commandant Chart van der Walt, led this new large commander that you heard about, but things went even worse the second time around. Chart van der Walt was killed during a pre-dawn raid by the Khoisan in August 1802, and the large commander retreated back home for a second time. With the commando being given another lesson in African warfare, the Khoisan and Amakosa then decided to follow up their victory by launching a full-scale invasion into the Swellendam district. These days, that would be called a very good strategy by the likes of Karl von Klaaswitz. Always harry your enemy once they're defeated. So the Khoikhoi and the Amakosa destroyed Boer farms as far west as Mossel Bay. By the end of September 1802, the British had made their way back to Cape Town, and as they retreated, the frontier blazed behind them. By the end of 1802, more than 470 farms were in ruins, and stock losses topped 50,000 cattle and about the same number of sheep. About one-third of the frontier trek had fled. The reignition of the Third Frontier War saw panicked farmers on the run throughout the Cape and the frontier burghers suffered their worst setback by any settlers since the founding of the colony by Jan van Riebeck in 1652. The only British outpost left was Fort Frederick in Algoa Bay, which held out against Amakosa and the Khoisan, but was blockaded and the troops were stuck inside. Van der Kemp and Reed were also eventually compelled to seek refuge there with a force of Boers who hated them. The loathing and animosity had to be set aside for the moment within the confines of the fort, as together they gazed out at burning farms. Damakosa and Khoi were not holding back. The land was burned from the Great Fish River all the way south past the fort into the vast distance of the Khamtuas River. The farms were abandoned, the cornfields trampled. The orchards rotted, the owners on the road in their wagons trying to stay ahead of the attacking Amakosa. Back in the fort, Van de Kemp, though, was a little tone-deaf. He told the Boers that God's wrath had been justly incurred by the abuses suffered by the Khoi and Amakosa at their hands. Their flight, he said, was not caused by imminent attack, but more by guilt they felt over their behavior towards their servants and the fear of revenge. Peace, said Van de Kemp, would only settle on the Eastern Cape when This land is cleared from the scourge of wicked Christians, as they call themselves. It would be the safe abode of heathens whom God will receive and bless, united with a small remnant of true Christians. The true Christians, as far as he was concerned, were himself and Reed. Who will be spared? They will form a happy society. But give Van de Kemp some credit. He also told Stuurman to his face that the Khoisan rebel would face charges for any atrocities and crimes he was committing during this war. Stuck inside Fort Frederick, most Trekboers and devout Khoikhoi believed it was the end of days. We are stationed here, wrote one commander, the last outpost of the Christian Empire. 
Back in Cape Town, Dundas was preparing to leave. It's a long way from Graaf Reinet and Algoa Bay to the tip of Africa, and the retrocession of the Cape to the Batavian Commonwealth took nine months. Dundas, though, would finally withdraw on the 20th of February, 1803. Before then, he naturally washed his hands of the Eastern Cape and the Zutphen. Let them fight, was his logic. On the 1st of October, 1802, he withdrew all British troops from the region and handed over Fort Frederick to the Boers. If the Boers thought it was their time to eat, because the Dutch were once again in charge, they were sorely mistaken. For in the place of Dundas arrived a man who had many, many new ideas, and none were very much to the Trek Boers' liking. The new Commissioner-General was a romantic. When he arrived in Table Bay, he marvelled as everyone does when approaching the cloud-like mountain that rose into sight from the sea. Towards midday there rose out of the waves the copse that built like an amphitheatre, her well-plastered houses with flat roofs on the slopes of the mountain, strewn with estates planted with vineyards, the bay filled with elegant flag-flying ships, the cheers of the sailors sitting on the yard arms, the booming guns heralding our arrival with the echo carried back from the surrounding mountains. He was cheered by the view, the Cape of Good Hope indeed. By the way, the Batavian Republic of the Netherlands took its name from an ancient Germanic tribe that had occupied the estuary of the Rhine in Roman times. The Batavians were allies of France. They were mostly upper-class bourgeoisie and intelligentsia who had embraced the ideals of the French and American revolutions. The men who arrived at the Cape were spirited adherents of the Enlightenment. Jacob Abraham Eitenhacher de Mist was appointed Batavian Commissioner-General and received the Cape from the British. He was due to hand over the machinery of government in turn to the new governor, Lieutenant General Jonkir van Willem Janssens. This is where Southern African history was headed for another of those forks in the road. You see, those who arrived still affect us. Captain Ludwig Alberti, who arrived with the Valdek Regiment. Captain Paravaccini, aide-de-camp to Governor van Willem Janssens. Then there was Dr. Henry Lichtenstein, medical officer, and Augusta Eitenhach de Mist, the Commissioner-General's daughter. These men and women left a trove of literature about their time in the Cape from which we've gleaned much information. So the British received them with hospitality when they landed, and the formal transfer of power was to take place on 31st December, with the Batavian flag raised over the castle symbolically on the 1st of January 1803. That was the plan. However, as you're going to hear next episode, the jolly New Year Eve's party was going to be rudely interrupted by a British messenger who hastened from a ship that had anchored in the bay that evening. He brought a message from England. Hold your horses, don't hand over Cape Town just yet. London is rethinking its adherence to the terms of the Treaty of Amiens. Please read the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. You can contact me by going to my website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com and you can direct message me on Twitter at deslatham. Until next, tootsies.